Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. This week, hold us away, but we'll do the podcast anyway, featuring him. Today, you get to hear him speak from Budapest, Hungary, where he addressed Brain Bar, an innovative meeting about the future. He specifically speaks on the future of food. So enjoy the podcast. And you'll be back next week for a regular episode of Talking Biotech. Good morning, everybody. We have an amazing speaker today. Um, a public intellectual, a scientist, and a, just a wonderful human being who's dealing with some of the most fundamental challenges we face today, which is the future of food, how we're going to grow our food, how we're going to consume our food. We have a growing population, record numbers of people on the move worldwide. And our speaker today, Kevin Falter, has a solution and some ideas about how we're going to address many of these major problems. Let's give a huge round of applause to our speaker, Kevin Falter. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me out to Brain Bar. This is really exciting, and it's a great opportunity to be um, to be here in Budapest and tell you about what I do and my vision for the future. I, I'm a professor at the University of Florida, and the University of Florida has the distinction of helping farmers throughout the world, and in the state of Florida alone, managing almost 300 different kinds of crops. It's really exciting for me because I work with a group of people that are obsessed with sustainability. How do we grow more food with less space, using the best we can learn from things like space biology, all the way to the techniques we learn on organic farms to sustainably provide food for the future? What I'd like to do today is give you a vision of some of the things that we're thinking about and some important considerations when we can think about the future of food and how we're going to feed that growing planet. Now, some of the things that I worry about, I have to think every day about farmers. It's a small amount of the population, yet how do we keep farming, how do we keep them economically viable, keep farmers in the black? Um, in the state of Florida, we have a problem with citrus greening disease. That's stealing the citrus and destroying an industry. We worry about the industrialized world consumer. They're eating the wrong kind of calories. They don't have good access to the best flavored fruits and vegetables. And because of that, we see soaring health costs, that better diets that are more plant-based could help. I worry a lot about the developing world and the people who have food insecurity. And it's not just the developing world, it's also in the industrialized world that we see too many people not having access 
of fresh fruits and vegetables even in our major cities. In many places in the U.S., you'd be very fortunate to find a very old apple and maybe a brown banana as your access to fruits and vegetables. I also worry about the environment. In the state of Florida and throughout the U.S., throughout the world, we see a declining set of resources that we can use in sustainable farming, whether it's water resources or, or land resources especially. There's only so much land shown here in the green that is amenable to farming. We don't have any more. We have to use what's there. And so what we'll talk about today is something that uh, is, is how we use that land better and some of the ways that's being done with technology. Even though we're trying to grow crops, there are a huge number of threats to sustainable production. We know that there's a changing climate and that farmers are forced to cope with growing crops in different places. Uh, the, 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 the playing field is always reshaping. Uh, we know that there are new pests and pathogens that are moving to different areas where they previously weren't, posing new challenges for farmers. The disease in Florida that's destroying the citrus industry wasn't there in 2003. This is all new, or all new pests and challenges that are causing changes to the way farmers have to farm. We also know that there are huge problems with labor. Not only that, it's difficult to find labor to do menial chores like, like uh, removing weeds and tending the crops. I personally feel that it's work that humans shouldn't have to do in 20, 2019. I think there are better ways to do that work than uh, have people doing this kind, of, this kind of labor. The other big issue is water, as I mentioned before. That water and other resources are quite scarce and in many parts of the world are, are almost non-existent. So how do we do more in the face of all these threats? And for me, the word really boils down to sustainability. And sustainability has three different parts. It has economic sustainability. How do farmers maintain doing it? We have to have environmental sustainability, being able to have sustainable practices which are good for our planet. And then social sustainability. How do we have food equity? and equal access to the technologies to produce it. And that is what I feel is my central message. The word that we have to think about is intensification, because we only have so much space. And while many people say we need to revert to old methods and we have to go backwards in the way we produce crops, I feel it's kind of the opposite, that we only have so much land and so many resources, we have to intensify how much we make on that space. So we need to have the same amount of land. We have, to, we have to use fewer inputs, so less fertilizer, less pesticide, less herbicide. We have to use all of. We have to use less of the inputs for this. Less fuel, less labor, and then at the same time, we need to be producing massively more food. So you can see the challenge. We have to do more with less, and there's three ways that we'll be able to do that. Three ways that we are doing that. And I'll show you a little bit about what the future looks like in these areas. We have to control things we can control in the environment. We have to be able to control management of crops in different ways, in innovative ways. And finally, we need to be able to use the best genetics that fit the solutions uh, that we can propose. And when we marry management, environment, and genetics, we can have exponentially synergistic outcomes that really do change the way we can farm on a minimal space with fewer resources. One of the first things we can do are very simple environmental changes, something as simple as using a colored mulch to 
to reflect different wave bands of light, that different parts of the spectrum help enrich the way that crop grows and develops. We know that we can use cover crops. This kind of old idea is coming back into vogue, using different crops that can maybe fix nitrogen, or different, uh, not even crops, but plants, that, can, that are locally adapted, that can fix nitrogen, maybe suppress pests and pathogens, and that way when you plant your crop, it's in a better place for the crop to grow. It's a very popular technology that's being adopted more and more. We're looking at the microbiome. So the bacteria and, and fun, fungi that are associated with the roots and how we can have soil that's rich in these bacteria and maybe even supplement it with more. These are the next waves of technology that will help limit disease and help plants grow better with less fertilizer. The other thing we need to think about are the ecosystem services that we can put on the farm that help keep pollinators and beneficial insects around. And this is all new technology. It's old technology, but once again, finding a new place in modern farming. The other thing that we can do is create completely artificial environments. And this is getting really big in city centers. One of the things that you're seeing happening are plant factories. These are massive internal, inside massive uh, installations and buildings that are repurposing urban space. They're providing fresh fruits and vegetables for local consumers. They're finding employment for local, local people and also recirculating water and nutrients. So there's a lot of sustainability in this with some problems when it comes to energy efficiency because of the huge amounts of energy required to power such facilities. But that's changing. That's one of the things my laboratory works on is how do we rethink the lighting in these types of uh, production systems. The other thing we can do, and this is where things are really changing fast, it's so exciting, is in crop management. So we'll soon have robots pulling weeds. This will take the place of immigrant labor or migrant labor with small hooves. These are machines that will do the work 24 hours a day using machine vision to remove the weeds rather than use herbicides. You'll see uh, it's already happening now. Um, farmers get a call on their smartphone when the weather is most conducive to a fungicidal threat. So that way they know that they have to go out into the field and spray a limited amount of fungicide. In the state of Florida, it's cut fungicide application by 60%. The other things that are happening are rovers that go out in the field and sniff for different pathogens. They look for different insects. And when they find them, a drone will come in and apply some specific treatment to that spot. So long gone are the days when you'll have a plane fly over a field with broad spectrum insecticide, which is a huge environmental plus. The other thing that's happening is robotic harvesting, taking that menial labor uh, out of the equation. So now we can have fresh fruits and vegetables that are not dependent upon human misery and toiling in a field to produce food for us. That's all really exciting, and it's getting even more exciting when you start to integrate technology from big data that there are sensors in the field, that there are sensors on satellites, that there are um, uh, drones and rovers in the field that are studying the soil, and then telling farmers exactly where they need to apply different fertilizers. They can use variable rates throughout the field that automatically follow the instructions given by satellites and drones. This is happening now, and it means significant cuts in the amount of fertilizers that are introduced into a, in the land, which may ultimately end up in water. This is another tremendous step forward. But one of the other places where we'll see really huge gains is in my area of biotechnology. How do genetics change this equation? And what are the traits that we need to change? 
We need to have better disease resistance, because if we have genetic resistance, we don't need to use chemistry to solve that problem. We can have insect resistance. This is happening too, bringing in genes that, that from breeding that have resistance to insects. Also, post-harvest waste. How do you have fruit that have higher quality so that we're not throwing away 40 to 50% of what is produced? We also need to have plants that are resilient to stress. That in many parts of the world, in the poorest parts of the world, where there's tremendous food insecurity, it's caused because of weather and climatic events. We also need to have higher yields for farmers worldwide. The other big issue is increasing nutrient density. In many areas of the world, vitamin A is a tremendous problem, and millions of children go blind every year. Increasing the nutrient density of crops is another way to solve that problem. And of course, in the industrialized world, it's important for us to increase flavors and aromas, another thing my laboratory works on. The idea being that if we make it taste better, people will eat more fruits and vegetables. That's my goal. So how do we do this? And when we look across the world, we realize that most of the crops we consume come from somewhere else. And they end up on our farmland because humans have domesticated them, brought them into our control, and changed them over time by selecting the ones we want with the traits that we find most valuable. We find that today there's new opportunities to go into the wild and find crops, or find what will be crops someday, because we can identify these plants and bring them into our control and select for the better ones. This is the process of plant breeding. And what we're seeing is new opportunities to domesticate different plants and different fruits and vegetables that are present somewhere in the wild, but really haven't had the benefit of human breeding and selection. We're now able to really start thinking about this, where things like pomerio from South America, uh, chafer from China, or, in, or plums from North America, wild plums, can be brought into our uh, breeding programs and improved for human consumption. The really nice part about that is that these, uh, we also can look back to the wild plants that are the predecessors of the ones that we currently consume. Corn comes from something called teosinte, which grows in Mexico and was selected by humans to have improved traits. Things like tomatoes, let me go backwards there, things like tomatoes have wild relatives as shown there on the right. The wild relatives are very small and don't have the same flavors as, as the uh, tomato that we bread, but it has important disease resistance that our modern tomatoes don't. So can we go back to those wild tomatoes and be able to move the genetics into modern varieties? This is a huge area of research and has been enabled by modern breeding techniques. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, but, but the one really good success story in this area is the orange sweet potato in Africa. Now for most folks in the West, an orange sweet potato is no big surprise but in Africa it was scarce, that they would eat a white flesh sweet potato rather than an orange flesh one. An effort that won the World Food Prize in 2016 got breeders to begin to introduce other genetics to be able to produce that orange flesh sweet potato, which is rectifying vitamin A deficiency in many areas of Africa. This is a huge success story of how one set of genetics that were not necessarily there was changed by bringing in genes from outside plants and using traditional breeding techniques accelerated with modern technology to be able to produce something that is healthy. And this is all done because of something we call genomic selection. Now just like you can go online and you can order someone to look at your DNA and give a list of all your genes and all the different DNA markers in your body, 
We can do this with plants. And this is what modern breeding is all about. We can look at two different potential parents, look at all their DNA, and find the little bits of DNA that tend to associate, that tend to follow the traits that we're interested in. And when we have that information, we can accelerate breeding because it allows us to make decisions about a plant when it's that big rather than when we have to grow a tree for 10 years. And this is why breeding is so exciting. It's such a great area to be in right now. The reason it works so well is because just like dogs came from a common ancestor and a small number of genetic changes led to the diversity of different dogs, the same is true in vegetables. That all of our brassicas come from one foundational brassica species that humans selected for a given gene one way or the other, either for a better stem or different buds or maybe different flower structures. This is all a consequence of human intervention in plant biology to increase uh, the traits that we really like. The other areas in which we're doing this is in genetic engineering. And even though people sometimes have very negative feelings about genetic engineering, there's no question that it has, in many cases, helped decrease the amount of pesticides we're using in corn. And in the Brinjal in Bangladesh, has been transformative for many very food insecure farmers. It's allowed them to use less pesticide to be able to produce the crop. Another good example of the vitamin A enrichment is the vitamin A enrichment of banana. And even though this is not yet available, it's something that was done. And it wasn't done by a big corporation. It was done by her. That's Dr. Priver Nemanja. Her and her research team in Uganda and Kenya was able to introduce these genes from a wild banana into their cultivated banana in Uganda with the idea of helping relieve food security. But today, because of sentiments mostly coming from the EU and from the US, they don't have access to this, that this, uh, this particular banana is behind barbed wire and can't reach the people it was meant to serve. The new technology will be gene editing. And I hope you really study what this is and what this isn't, because it's very exciting. This allows us to make precision changes in, a, in the genes of a plant it, just by erasing a single letter. So it'll, it's almost like going into a library and erasing a letter from one book and changing the meaning of that book. This is what will allow us to do what took years to create the different brassicas that I showed you earlier. You can do this now maybe within the time of a year to erase that one letter and produce that trait that you're looking for. And that may be resistance to disease that can cut insecticide use. The other thing that's coming, um, well, gene editing has been really useful in limiting disease in pigs. This is something that is already existing, although it hasn't yet been approved for, for human use. Um, they can suppress allergens in peanuts or in bread and wheat. They also have cured children of leukemia by introducing genetically engineered cells, which have had certain markers deleted so that they don't cause a reaction inside the child. Uh, these children are alive today because of gene editing technology. The future will also be in synthetic biology. And this is the hottest area. Synthetic biology is where we're able to create completely new circuits in the cell artificially that give it capacities to, uh, maybe you can have a plant that when you shine one color of light produces an anti-cancer compound, or shine a different color of light to produce an antibiotic. This kind of thing will be really important in the colonization space. So really, to start wrapping up, we need to be able to produce more fruits and vegetables, and we need to be able to do it sustainably. And it's going to, it's going to require precise control of environments, new management techniques, and improvements in genetics. And when we marry these things together, it can create tremendous change.
really one part that we really have to think of is how we have to adjust our rhetoric and how we have to think about the way we talk about crop improvement and the new techniques that are coming. We have to remember that we have to change our focus from we need to feed the world, which is really kind of an arrogant statement you hear scientists and farmers say all the time. And we need to recraft that. And for me, it's about technology. We have to learn about local needs. We have to learn about local opportunities. We have to learn about local people that need access to technology to ensure their access to innovative ways to approach food security. That's the way I hope that we can solve the problem. And that there is no one single solution. Many people pro propose one single solution and it just can't happen that way. It's going to be an integration of using all the best technologies and making sure that people in the poorest parts of the world have access to them. That they would have equal access to that satellite data and those opportunities to grow with more sustainability that we would enjoy in the industrialized world. Really what this is about is sensitive intensification. The bottom line is that we all understand that fruits and vegetables are a cornerstone of a healthy diet. We need to be sure that all people on this planet have equal access to the best technologies, no matter what they are. And uh, as, as our um, uh, esteemed Nobel laureate, uh, the Dr. Norman Borlaug told us that you can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs, <clears throat> on empty stomachs in human misery. So with that, um, I'll be really happy to conclude there. So thank you very much for your attention. If you're um, ever interested in these technologies, check out the podcast that I do as well. Thank you very much, and I'll be happy to take any questions. Thank you for that uh, wonderful speech. Now, right behind you right now, our, our, our folks are getting set up. Now, this is when you have an opportunity to ask the question you really want to ask. Now, please hurry, stand if you want to ask a question, and make your way to the front of the stage. You see our wonderful helpers here with the big yellow arrows. People come to either side, but do it now. Let's get, get going. If you've got questions, start moving, okay? Now, you'll, you'll see at the back there, I have a button. And what we're going to do is we are going to have each person ask a question, and then I can control who speaks next. Any other speakers, come up now. Please take a seat, sir. Kevin. Okay, Kevin, please turn to okay, the lady. All right, fire away. Uh, you said that we should ensure that everyone has equal access to all these technologies in the whole world. I would like to ask how you think we can do this. So, how do we ensure that people have equal access? You know, it's really a difficult question because there's no one solution, and the world is such a different place with different challenges. But I think being sensitive to these things is the first step. And I think, especially in the industrialized world, using our organizations like Gates Foundation or USAID, I know a number of European organizations, have the opportunity to help alleviate these specific examples. And we need to be supporting them in their, in their causes. What is the maximum amount of people what the bird can handle? And what is the point when the bird just says, I'm out, I can feed you more, I can grow more plants, and that's so And what can you do with the language used to be said that you could only cultivate it? Well, thank you very much. It's a great question. So the question always comes up about if you, if you give people, how much food do we create? And do we create another problem with population and more exhaustive pressure on the resources? But I'm under a firm belief that if you feed people, they have more time for education. And if you have more time for education, you have more eventually more access for medical care. 
And if you take care of people, feed them, and educate them, there are fewer children and less pressure on population. And I think we've seen that in many areas of the world already. So I think our solution really is, let's take care of people by ensuring food security is the first step. Um, so the biggest concern uh, um, humans have regarding uh, genetic uh, GMOs is uh, what effects can it have on the human uh, health. So I would like to know if some of the genetic modifications can have an effect on the human DNA. Okay, so the question comes up all the time. And we studied this now for 30 years. And in years of study of this, there have been no examples of adverse effects from genetically engineered ingredients from genetically engineered crops. That's certain. Um, granted, there's a lot of other information out there that's available on the internet, but it makes our job harder as scientists who really want to do the right thing because we don't necessarily have the public support because of that misinformation. Hello, uh, you have told us about how to grow food on an industrial level, but what about personal level? What if I, I want to grow food at my home or, or how should I be able to do that? No, you're talking to the right guy. Um, we, 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 yeah, we, we grow um, about five acres of specialty crops and sell at farmers markets. And uh, to me, it's, it, that's an, it's an excellent way for us to appreciate what it takes to grow a crop. And I think introducing children to how to grow crops growing crops in our homes. It's the freshest vegetables, they last the longest and give us the best flavors and aromas. So doing this at home is the best way to do it. I think that also is when you get children to grow crops and participate in this, you find that they will never waste another piece of tomato or a piece of lettuce because they see what it takes to grow it. So definitely grow crops at home. Thank you. A huge amount of the world's resources are used for factory farming and the whole ecological damage caused by factory farming in terms of water consumption, methane, etc. And have you looked at that issue? Oh, certainly. I mean, it's a major concern. That when we look across the world and the amount of resources that are used, this is why I propose we need enhanced genetic solutions. We need better use of technology so that we're not having the same ecological footprint from farming. There's no way that we'll be able to intensify. We can't take up any more environment. We have to be able to uh, intensify sustainably. I'm talking about an, for animals being oh, for farmed animals. For, uh, for, for consumption. No, and and that's, another, that's another part of the equation. Certainly, uh, raising animals requires lots of uh, plant production, right? 35 pounds or about 15 kilos to be able to uh, support one uh, kilo. So it, it's one big part of sustainability and that we're going to probably have to change our expectations towards the amount of meat we consume. You told that uh, we should use robots instead of people uh, in labor. And uh, what do you suppose, what should people uh, do with no or almost no education? Now, I understand that, but I think it ties back in with the idea that if we uh, have people who are... So a great example is right now in Bangladesh, where they previously would have children out spraying crops with chemicals to protect them from insects. When they introduced the genetically engineered brinjal that allows a farmer to not use as many sprays, from 80 a year to 2, those children can now attend school. In Africa, a friend of mine, um, he would, I would say, well, how do you control the insects? He would say, well, we just have the children come and pick them off and take them somewhere else. 
So my feeling is that if we can shift the expectation of getting people out of these kinds of jobs and into other types of product, productive jobs, service jobs, uh, data economy jobs, this is what the future will be like. What do you think of the future of meat and vegetarianism? Yeah, well, I was a vegetarian for 16 years, so I appreciate what it does. Um, switched back because of some health reasons. But I firmly do believe that we do consume too much meat. I think we can consume less. And I think that if our expectation was changed, where fruits and vegetables were better and more diverse, they would take a centerpiece in our diet. So part of my mission here is to get people to eat more fruits and vegetables, pull them maybe a little away from meat. Certainly protein is an important part of the diet. It's tied very much to human development and cognition and shock kill. Children who have access to meat have better cognitive development. That's been demonstrated. But I do think that we really do have to dial back the impact of meat and how much we consume. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we need to have a massive round of applause. Thank you for listening to the Captain Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.